Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is Molly Worthen. She's a professor of history at the University of North Carolina. Her research focuses on North American religious and intellectual history, particularly the ideas and culture of conservative Christianity. Her most recent book, Apostles of Reason, The Crisis of Authority in American Evangelicalism, examines American evangelical intellectual life since 1945. She teaches courses in global Christianity, North American religious intellectual culture, and the history of politics and ideology. She's also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and has written about religion and politics for Slate, the Boston Globe, Foreign Policy, and a host of other publications. Today, we talk a little bit about evangelicalism, the political landscape, and about saying, I feel like, and its dangers in intellectual conversation. I give you Molly Worthen. Molly, welcome to the podcast. It's it's the first time on Give and Take, but not the first time we've spoken. Yeah, I'm so glad to talk to you again. And I want to say, after reading your stuff, I feel like... But then, if I begin with I feel like, (laughs) what I've been learning by reading your New York Times columns is that actually that makes no positive contribution to the conversation. It actually is a corrosive conversation stopper. Yes, I did write a grumpy column about how people say I feel like too much when they're actually expressing something that they think. And why do you think that that's problematic? Why is that problematic? Well... I think it is one of these phrases that has sort of crept up on us, like so many uh, colloquialisms do, and we don't really think about its its meaning. Um, but even if we don't intend anything special by it, it has a subversive way of shaping what we're communicating. When When I say, I feel like Donald Trump's not a great guy, what I'm saying is that that is not a judgment. That is just sort of an instinctive emotional reaction. And you, no matter what your judgment might be, you can't really challenge or impeach my feelings. My feelings are sacrosanct. Um, And so there's this way in which uh, expressing ourselves like that, um, even though it's intended, I think, often by especially um, younger people who use it. I notice it a lot in my students, although my colleagues, too. It's intended as a softener. It's, an, it's intended as a way of expressing yourself but not being too much in the other person's face. In fact, it has this funny way of of boomeranging and having the opposite effect. It shuts down open debate because it makes it all about how we feel rather than uh, comparing our judgments and investigating one another's evidence uh, for those judgments. So in other words, when it's uttered, it's feigning epistemic humility but really, it's like creating a sacrosanct personal safe space. Exactly. And now, I'm I'm not suggesting that I'm naive about our reasoning process. And, I, you know, cognitive scientists have well established that emotion plays an active role in our reasoning. But the answer there is to is to be very aware of that and be honest with ourselves about when we are responding to something on the basis of emotion or trying to do our best to sort of unravel uh, emotion from what are still 
reasoned judgments based on reality accessible out in the world, not in my heart, right? Uh, so, you know, I had a really interesting uh, conversation with a, with a cognitive scientist about this, and he'd, he'd written a, a book all about, um, this is um, Anthony Damasio's his name, uh, called Descartes' Error, all about how uh, it's this mistake to try to separate mind and body, and, and emotions are, are totally entwined with our reasoning. And when I called him up, I thought, oh, this guy is going to totally shoot me down. He's going to say, I feel like is this much more honest uh, form of expression that actually captures the cognitive process. But in fact, he told me it drives him bananas, too. And he finds it really imprecise. And, uh, you know, while he stands by his, uh, you know, his theories of, of human reasoning, he does not think at all that that's what's happening when people use this colloquial turn of phrase. So, you know, I have no illusions about, you know, the, pos the possibility that a single op-ed can staunch the tide of, you know, English language slang. But my, my idea was to just make us a slightly more aware, slightly more self-conscious about the language we use. Better to put forth one reasoned op-ed than just curse the likeness. Um, right. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a historian, and when you're figuring out, you know, what my research field is going to be and what I'm going to work on, you wind up working on American religion, and you've done a lot of work on American evangelicalism. And I think anybody in grad school thinking through that process, I mean, it can be such a crapshoot. Are you just thinking of late last few years winning? <laughs> okay, what a great topic I picked for relevance. <laughs> well, I, I was uh, thinking along those lines in graduate school, I suppose. Uh, I went to graduate school because I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a religion writer, but I didn't know very much about most religions. I had some bits and pieces of expertise or pseudo-expertise based on stuff I'd done as an undergraduate, but that hardly counts. Um, and this was, you know, this was in 2004, 2005, the last point in in history probably when it was it seemed plausible for even a relatively risk-averse person to seek to become a, a journalist and Subsequently, the, the bottom really fell out from that profession even more than academe. So I, I, I stuck to the, the safer option, I suppose, and also got spoiled by doing journalism in, in this context with all these resources. But this all meant that I was strategic. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of a closet medievalist. I would have been very happy, I think, devoting my time in graduate school to, you know, 14th century Carthusians or something like that. But I wanted to be able to sell articles to magazine and newspaper editors. So I thought, well, I should... I should pay attention to, you know, something that's relevant to the contemporary political landscape. And, you know, it turns out to really understand anything about American evangelicals. You, you have to do your homework many, many centuries back. I mean, you've, you've got to go back to the beginning, really. So I was able to scratch all of my, you know, medieval and ancient history itches in the course of learning about American evangelicals. If I were going to, if there were an award ceremony for the person that, understands evangelicals the best that's not one it would probably ever every year between be a runoff between you and mark oppenheimer yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm very I, flattered I, to, to to hear that i love mark uh, we we act we studied under the same advisors in grad school i know him pretty well i i call him the extrovert's extrovert i feel like i'm pretty outgoing 
when I've spent some time with him, like, I mean, he is, he is, I, I feel like shy and like a wallflower around that guy. That guy is a charming, extroverted ball of energy and a great guy. He is. And I actually, I think that explains our divergence because, you know, he, he really be, went more the journalist track, although he has a perch at Yale. And I really went the more conventional academic track. And I would say that I am an introvert who pretends to be an extrovert. And that's why I'm much happier in the university because it's, you know, it's a monastic profession fundamentally. <laughs> For the closet medievalist. Right. <laughs> now, you've written a, your most recent piece for the New York Times is really interesting because you actually talk about how some of the cultural relativism that can, often conservatives bemoan, although we're hearing it more from the left now a little bit, um, but usually it's conservatives that bemoan it. You actually argue that well, evangelicalism is at least in part a contributing factor, maybe a major contributing factor to it. That's right. I I don't in, intend in, in that essay to suggest that conservative Protestants are somehow entirely to blame for our post-truth fake news uh, culture. However, I think the problem with trying to make this entirely a story of cultural relativism and these crazy postmodernists who've been allowed to run amok in, in the universities and corrupt the minds of our youth is that it ignores this actually much longer history of the uh, religious tradition in uh, conservative evangelicalism of, of mounting a defensive um, strategic action against unwelcome information. And, and that's been going on at, at least since the scientific revolution, uh, since really in the 17th century context of these new intellectual challenges to Protestant orthodoxy. On the one hand, those of the scientific revolution. On the other hand, those of uh, these savvy Catholic theologians who would mount these very intricate, logical um, attempts to dismantle Protestant reasoning. Uh, those two challenges compelled a certain set of Protestant theologians to come up with a new method of defending the Bible's authority, and they essentially turned their enemies' weapons back upon them, and they developed a highly rationalistic way of talking about the Bible's authority. And this evolved over the centuries, particularly in the 19th century when um, they were required to respond to the theory of evolution and new modes of uh, scrutinizing the Bible, higher biblical criticism, this school of thought that uh, emerged in the German universities of essentially treating the Bible as you would any other man-made artifact and picking apart its cultural context, the you know the, the separate authors and their intentions and imperfections. Um, this this highly rationalistic approach to the Bible evolved into the modern doctrine of biblical inerrancy that takes the Bible to be a source of perfect truth, not just in matters pertaining to salvation, but in matters, matters of every scientific and historical fact. And that, that has become a kind of intellectual wall um, that evangelicals have, have used to defend uh, um, their faith against the threats of, of what is increasingly the, the consensus of the professional scientific or, or historical community, depending on what, what question we're, we're talking about. And in that essay, I was particularly interested in the way in which the doctrine of inerrancy was taken up around the turn of the century by some thinkers in the reform tradition as the bedrock of a a new school of apologetics that they called presuppositionalism. And that's a real mouthful, but the, the basic idea is, is 
simply that humans all have assumptions. We all have presuppositions that frame our, our worldview. And in some way, this was not a, a new thing for Christians to claim. I mean, you can go back to Augustine and find the idea of faith preceding understanding, Christian faith being the bedrock, you know, that we, we just accept. We don't try to reason our way to that. We reason from that. So in, in some sense, these, these 20th century thinkers were, were just picking that up in a, in a more modern context. Um, but they came to talk in terms of, of the Christian worldview um, as the, the Christian set of presuppositions that had to frame everything that couldn't be uh, questioned. And among those presuppositions is typically biblical inerrancy. So this has given um, those evangelicals who have adopted this, this language a way to kind of have their intellectual cake and eat it too. So uh, they still claim to, to be able to read the Bible scientifically, that it, it is perfectly reconcilable with good science. You know, the theory of evolution is not good science for most of them. However, at some level, it is beyond science. It can't, it can't be challenged by, by, by the claims of, of human scientists or, or historians or, or archaeologists. Because, you know, I, I've come to understand in my, in my research that evangelicals are as much a creatures of the Enlightenment as they are creatures of of an anti Enlightenment tradition, and so they're very they're very eager to to be able to to claim the side of science and be seen as is on the side of of advancing human knowledge, um, and. This phrase that, you know, the Christian worldview, it, you know, pops up just everywhere once you get into the kind of evangelical blogosphere. And it's very easy if you're not, you know, kind of trained to, to read it, to gloss over it as a rather innocuous, maybe shorthand for a particular conservative culture wars platform. But really, there's so much more to it. And, and my point in that piece was simply that there's really this, this centuries of bedrock beneath that that shape our current political context. You know, my wife just helped me figure out what a couple weeks ago, what the phrase have your cake and eat it too means. Cause I, I was like, well, I always want to just eat my cake. Why would I just want to, and she's like, no, no, it's like a wedding cake and it's beautiful and you don't want to break up the, the icing and everything. And like, <laughs> oh, that's why that phrase makes sense now. It's like, who wouldn't want to eat their cake? Like, I mean, but I get it. Now. Yeah. I mean, is it, is it fair to say that, you know, I mean, my Calvin teacher in seminary said that for Luther and Calvin, the Bible was per was perfectly reliable. And some of their, intellectual descendants wanted to say, no, it's reliably perfect. Yeah, this question of the first generation of reformers is an interesting one, and it's it's one that, you know, conservative inerrantists will, will absolutely claim um, Luther and Calvin on their side, and, and then, you know, those those evangelicals who, who are uncomfortable with inerrancy will dispute that. And I'm I'm persuaded by by the latter camp um, by by the suggestion that I think is borne out by what these guys wrote that in the context of the those battles in that first generation of the Reformation they were concerned with protecting and advocating for the authority of the Bible as a whole, and they were really not that wrapped up in these abstruse debates over particular passages. And in fact, you know, Luther was famously sort of callous about, you know, those those books of the of the Bible that he didn't like, you know, the the epistle of James is an epistle of straw and you know some famous statements like that. Uh, Calvin famously wrote that God stammers when he speaks for human ears, you know, that mm. that God sort of lowered himself into this imperfect medium of human language to communicate the gospel. Um, but the battles of subsequent generations were were different. And you know, this is something uh, 
um, that I think historians are constantly trying to point out as um, con conservative members really of any faith, uh, try to go back in history and claim their earlier ancestors and sort of teleport them, you know, into our moment in 2017. I mean, you can find language that looks like the language of inerrancy going all the way back. Um, you can find, you know, Irenaeus uh, talking about uh, the, the Bible's perfection. But it's important to remember that Irenaeus's main concern, you know, was the Gnostics. You know, when he wrote against heresies, he was not worrying about evolution. He didn't have any notion of the scientific method as we think about it today. Uh, he was worried about a very different kind of threat. And that, that shapes his meaning, that shapes how we should read him. So I think there's a way of, of appreciating the continuities um, on, on both sides of any of these issues, while also respecting the, the historical context of these earlier figures and how their, their concerns and priorities and, and understandings of scripture were a bit different from our own. Do people ever come to you as like a theological therapist? Because I feel like you know you want you want clinical distance from a good therapist. So the fact that you're not necessarily an observant person in this tradition, but you understand it so well, I, I feel like you'd be great for a lot of pastors and like theologians and Christian college presidents. You could sit on the couch. All right, let me tell you how to go about this. Like <laughs> that's interesting. Occasionally, I have students who are working through their own relationship to their faith, and they take one of my courses and they're all history courses and they, they learn, uh, they learn about aspects of their own tradition or sometimes the, a tradition they are, they've just joined that disturb them or don't aren't easily reconcilable with, with their worldview. And I think it does help them to, to talk, talk through it in terms of history and, and also in terms of the wide range of intellectual solutions that Christians have come up with across all the traditions and, and over many centuries to some of these problems, you know, some that are relatively new, uh, you know, like how should Christians think about health care to, you know, the most ancient ones, the problem of evil. So it just helps to know something about the community of saints and, and the way that, uh, that other you know, other other Christians who've come before you have have wrestled with these things, and you're not alone in that. Uh, however, I was struck by the reaction to this mo that most recent um, op-ed uh, that you mentioned, because I saw it as essentially a 1,200-word summary of my most recent book, and my most recent book got a, a fairly generous response, even from pretty conservative evangelicals. I mean, you know, they're always they're always the haters, but. You know, no, you're, Al, you're sympathetic. I mean, your book is sympathetic. I mean, you paint, yeah. you paint evangelicals not as anti-intellectual as, as many people do. It's like, no, it's a different kind of intellectual. I mean, I, I feel like it's a sympathetic portrait. Right, right. I mean, and someone as conservative as Al Mohler, you know, he had it certainly had his criticisms, but, you know, he wrote in his review, you know, this is a must read for all evangelicals or something. However... It was interesting, um, you know, in my in my brain when I published that that you know much much reduced version of the argument in the newspaper, I had all that you know backstory and context in my mind, but of course it can't make it onto the page in that in that short number of words, and I got a much more intense blowback uh, from conservative evangelicals. I think because in twelve hundred words you just can't you can't there's not the room for the nuance. So even though I tried to juxtapose the stories of, you know, this this very interesting young earth creationist, uh, Harvard-trained um, researcher at the, the Young Earth Ministry Answers in Genesis against the story of a kind of complicated, interesting 
uh, evangelical church like the Nazarenes, where you know you have some who who are hardcore opponents of evolution, but but historically the Nazarenes have this tradition of challenging that that um, fundamentalist view of inerrancy, and and especially in the context of evangelical colleges, you have so much interesting. Uh, question asking going on. Um, somehow, you know, it, it still it still was a as every opinion piece is a sort of caricature. You know, it couldn't get into the weeds, and so I think I lost a lot of evangelical readers who liked my book a lot, but thought, wait, you know, does she now hate evangelicals? So I regret that, but it's just it's a kind of a cost of the genre, and I tell myself you can't make the perfect the enemy of the good because so many more people read. <laughs> an essay in the New York Times and will ever read my book. And so if they come away with just some grain of something that's sort of half right that they didn't think or know before, well, you know, that's the point. Do you think the strength of the of the young earth creationist movement is the theme parks? I mean, because the alternative position, <laughs> you just go to the Smithsonian or whatever. But I mean, you know, you got, I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't pick a special trip to the Ken Ham Noah's Ark thing. But I'll tell you, if I was passing through, I would stop. I mean, sure. <laughs> it I would sounds do. really interesting. You know, it's it's uh, you can't for good intellectually nuanced positions. There generally aren't theme parks. That's you know, I got a couple of very grumpy emails from evangelical scientists who said, you know, what about Francis Collins? What about the BioLogos crowd? You know, there are all sorts of very serious scientists who are, you know, faithful evangelicals but believe in evolution. We are the story. What about us? And I should have written, you need some theme parks, man. What I did write, <laughs> exactly. what I did write was, you know, I I regret that that you know the constituency you're describing doesn't have the same cultural influence that Ken Ham's Answers in Genesis does. But, you know, it's just if you just go on the basis of name recognition and, you know, the number of people who who buy Francis Collins's books or, you know, read his blog posts or whatever, compared to the millions upon millions of, of listeners and donors, you know, claimed by Answers in Genesis, I think the facts speak for themselves. And Part of the genius of the young earth creationists, who really, by the way, have not always had the clout they do. I mean, it's it's been really only since the 60s that uh, so many evangelicals have subscribed to young earth creationism. You know, the, the most uh, extreme form, this view that the earth was created in, in six 24-hour days, as opposed to kind of more mild, maybe theistic evolutionism or, or at least a sort of more capacious understanding of evolution or a creationism that allows for microevolution or something like that. And, you know, what happened in the 60s was partly the way in which uh, that doctrine became interwoven with so many other culture wars debates. And, and you know, its advocates successfully made the case to a lot of, of evangelicals that if you give any ground on this question of the literal interpretation of Genesis, it's all over on, you know, the question of women's roles or, uh, you know, our right to to keep our kids, you know, in, in, in Christian schools, you know, even if the IRS says they're segregated and, you know, all kinds of, you know, the Bible's authority over this land will crumble. if you if Dogs you give and that. cats living together. Right, <laughs> right. right. Uh, so. You know, there's this blend on among creationists um, in the in the kinds of arguments they make. You know, you have people like the fellow I interviewed for my article, Nathaniel Jeanson, who's this fascinating, really warm-hearted, generous guy. I, I really enjoyed talking to him, and I I felt badly, you know, being critical of him, but I I his he's so paradoxical in his thinking. I I just had to write about it. But you know, he um he he he's he has invested his career in 
really making a scientific case for creationism, and he's very interested in particular kinds of data sets. I, I couldn't really even follow his uh, his account of um, how he's he's got some new data on mutation rates that he's convinced is going to help him make his case, and that the real problem, the reason why mainstream scientists are not creationists is they just won't look at his data. And if they just read his papers and looked at his data, they would be pr- persuaded. So you have folks like him, but then, you know, someone like Tim LaHaye, uh, you know, spent a lot of his time not defending uh, creationism on, on scientific grounds so much as moral grounds and, and really saying that, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the ethos of evolutionism, survival of the fittest, you know, the only arbiter is chance, nothing is designed, that gave us Hitler, you know, that has given us all of the, the terrible things. Of, you know, right the to the Hitler argument. Hubris. Yeah, it's, that's the, as fast as you can get to Hitler, you know, that's, that's where the prize is, right? Um, so, so that blend of moral and pseudoscientific argument, I think, is, is really effective. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Uh, Peter Enns, Bible scholar, mm-hmm. um, who used to be at Westminster, there was a big controversy over something he wrote. He told me a story about, I think, a dinner or something he had with George Marsden. And who I, I didn't realize George Marsden, at that time, I didn't realize he'd started out in the kind of conservative Presbyterian tradition. And he said, why did you choose uh, religious history, American church history to focus on? Uh, he's like, well, I knew if I chose biblical studies or theology, I could never really be a good scholar. Hmm. Because, but nobody really says, well, what you write about Whitfield, that's going to ruin our faith. He's like, I figured I was safe to be a real scholar if I just mm-hmm. was a church historian. Yeah, that, I mean, that reminds me of what this guy, uh, Nathaniel Jeanson, said when, you know, I asked him how, how he, what, what it was like to be at Harvard, where, you know, certainly he, he had to be pretty much the only person in the developmental cell biology PhD program at Harvard Medical School who was a young earth creationist. And he said, well, it helped that I chose what he called a, a present tense research question. So his interest there was how do blood cells function? He wasn't, he said, you know, if I had, if I had gone into, uh, you know, geology or, you know, something, you know, something that, that was really engaged with origin science would have been much harder. But I mean, he was very frank. I was able to compartmentalize and I was strategic about that. And um, I, I, I think that's that's at work, you know, for for many of the very talented conservative evangelicals who who, who you know, pass through or make their homes in uh, secular higher education in one way or another. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm curious, given your research um it, you know it seems that in the primaries in this presidential election church going kind of evangelicals didn't by and large go for donald trump they tended to go with ted cruz or marco ruby or even john Kasich. but they kind of seem to all fall in line at the general i mean the literature i've read said that sort of the people that were christianity was almost a nationality they weren't observant religiously they you know they weren't theologically very formed some of them went to Trump, but generally the more catechized regular churchgoers didn't. But they kind of fell in line. I mean, what do you see as the future of evangelicalism in the Trump administration? Like, like how is that? I mean, so, some people have seemed to embrace him and others haven't. I mean, wh- how do you see this unfolding and what will it mean for American religious and political life, you think? Uh, that's, <clears throat> that's an interesting question. I think there are a number of reasons why evangelicals voted for him to begin with. Um, I take the many evangelicals who said it was all about abortion at their word. Um, 
I think that uh, that's something that it's so simple, but it's something that the secular left just can't understand that if if you if you believe that we are in the midst of an ongoing genocide, you should vote on that issue. And I find myself making this to me as a very obvious point again and again to my secular colleagues. And they they always come back to this this assumption that they don't always state explicitly that, no, that that actually has to be about something else. You know, the pro-life stuff, that's really a front for crushing women's autonomy or something. I don't think it is. However, I also think that there's this long, um, really, the, the, the totality of, of evangelical history in this country has in some sense paved the way for a candidate like Trump. And I, I wrote an essay uh, this week in The Atlantic about this, going all the way back to really the revolution. And what I see is the, the fusion of the evangelical commitment to spiritual autonomy, uncoerced conversion to Christianity, what the Baptists call soul liberty, with civil liberty, with this deep suspicion of federal government, uh, government overreach, uh, this this libertarianism that was kind of baked into um, majority evangelical convictions from the beginning, and yet also from the beginning was always very selective and pragmatic. So evangelicals have never been afraid to use, you know, government authority if it happened to work in their favor, you know, whether you're talking about the fight to abolish slavery or prohibition or nowadays, you know, preserving their their Medicare and, you know, using uh, the federal government to curb free trade if it's hurting their, you know, their their community in West Virginia. So that that kind of ideological slipperiness of Trump, you know, I think gels very well with with evangelical history, as does his leadership style, uh, his sort of dictator light charisma, I think, resonates with this long tradition of evangelical, you know, megachurch warlords answerable to no real authority but their own. You know, of course, evangelicals organize their churches in all kinds of ways, um, and it's difficult to generalize about their their views of church authority, but in general, uh, they have a, a weak ecclesiology. I mean, one of the things that distinguishes the evangelical subculture is the relative weakness of church structures and, and how easy it is to go off and kind of found your own empire as a pastor if you have any disagreement with um, with the church you're in. I mean, this is something that George Marston uh, writes about very effectively in all of his work work on on the, on the fundamentalist tradition. And so and this is especially true in the prosperity gospel world, which is really Trump's native spirituality. I mean, that's the spirituality he grew up with at, you know, Marble Collegiate listening to Norman Vincent Peale. Um, and that spirituality, of course, has vast tentacles that reach beyond evangelicalism, but it's very powerful in evangelicalism. And so his ability, you know, to, to tap into that language, um, you know, to, to have Paula White as his spiritual advisor. Um, and frankly, I think that, that that dimension of his spirituality, that confidence that all of his worldly riches confirm, you know, God's anointing on his head. I mean, that's probably pretty sincere, whether or not he actually goes to church. Um, so in so many ways, he makes a lot of sense, uh, if, you know, for, for evangelical voters. Now, what does this mean going forward? Well, you know, I, I, I think that no matter the the demographic realities, uh, which suggest that 
uh, conservative white evangelicalism is slowly contracting, if we're going by uh, membership numbers in some of the juggernaut denominations like Southern Baptists or, uh, or the Assemblies of God, no matter that, uh, they, they will remain a, a pretty powerful political force, I'm sure, for at least the next century. I mean, partly for the reason you mentioned, the fact that as much as Russell Moore would would love it if the only people who counted as evangelicals are the church-going evangelicals. The reality is that uh, that word has become a kind of cultural identity that seems to mean for a lot of those who tell the pollsters, I'm an evangelical, a kind of vague, you know, sense of identification with Christianity, a sense that I, as a native-born white American, am really the true beating heart of this country, and I'm the one to whom liberties and benefits ought to accrue first and anyone who wants to join this community needs to needs to sort of um get into line with you know with with my my views on on what our culture should look like i think that is what evangelical as a label has come to mean for a lot of americans who feel left behind by globalization who feel overwhelmed by uh the realities of pluralism and the way that the norms in this country have changed um pretty rapidly um, so that, and that's a, that's a, a, a sense of identity that Trump is, is not, he's not going to be the only one who kind of figures out how to mobilize that. And I've been really struck by the reaction and the, and, and to, to Russell Moore since the election, you know, here is one of the most vocal never Trumpers, you know, the president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, who I think he wrote two separate op-eds in the New York Times calling out his fellow evangelicals for favoring Trump, for even considering voting for him. He, you know, he really stood by his convictions, even as they became less and less popular. And since Trump won, you know, he's just been raked over the coals. And so many Southern Baptist pastors and, and lay people have been calling for, for his resignation, you know, take, taking, they say, great offense at the way he's insulted, you know, fellow Christians. And he's, I think he's really tried to thread the needle of uh, trying to make amends without backing away from his convictions entirely. But even though, you know, Trump has made many fumbles in his short presidency. He's backed away from many of his campaign promises. Um, he's given his, you know, those voters who supported him plenty of ammunition to say, you know, we're starting to wonder about this guy. That has not caused anyone that I can see to run to Russell Moore and say, you know, maybe you were onto something. And, you know, it's early days yet, but that is telling. Molly, I'm going to forever... I, I want you to copyright trademark the term evangelical megachurch warlords. I mean, <laughs> you should write a book about that. I mean, just on that topic. And like, you could have these hulking guys in the cover, like He-Man with Bibles. and That's right. It will lend itself to action figures. Scimitars. Exactly. Actually, exactly. <laughs> the theme park. I mean, Molly, thanks for spending some time talking with me. I'll check back in with you in a few months, maybe. And you can um, give me the American religious landscape then. Again. Sounds good. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. 
go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please do check out Molly Worthen's work. Her book, Apostles of Reason, is great. A great study of evangelical intellectual history. And her op-ed pieces for the New York Times are wonderful. And you can find links to two of her most recent ones in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.